All right, grab your Bibles, flip with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, what you just heard read there. Um, I'm, I'm going to make a note real quick that this is kind of for the foreseeable future, the last standalone sermon. So if you're not familiar with what a standalone sermon is, that's kind of when I get to pray and consider what text we're going to be in. From here on out, uh, our sermons are going to be governed by the book of the Bible we find ourselves preaching through. So hopefully when you came in, um, you saw on your seat one of those Crossway Bible journals. That's our gift to you. Next week we'll be in Colossians 1, 1 through 14, and, and I'm super stoked on that. We're going to spend about 12 weeks in Colossians, and then really our sermon series are designed all the way through the end of 2020 to this point. We're going to spend some time in Colossians. We'll be in Exodus. We'll be in Psalms and Proverbs, and we'll be in Ephesians over the next 18 months or so, 15, 18 months. And so uh, I get one final kind of put the ball on the tee and, and try to hit one this morning, and then we'll, we'll jump into a book of the Bible next week. And so let me just go ahead and give the spoiler alert, kind of the main point of the sermon sermon and of the text this morning, and then we'll work our way to it. Main point, knowing the end of the story radically changes how we live in the middle of it. Knowing the end of the story radically changes the way we live in the middle of it. So let's talk about a little bit of history that you're probably familiar with. You, hopefully you have a, a little bit of familiarity with World War II. Now, most historians and kind of scholars of World War II will say that the war effectively ended on June 6, 1944. So when you hear that date, what comes to mind? June 6, 1944. Anyone? Normandy. D-Day. She was a teacher. That's not fair. Um, <laughs> June 6, 1944 was D-Day when some 1,000 vessels carrying a couple hundred thousand soldiers sailed through the English Channel and stormed Normandy and the, the Allied forces overwhelmed and defeated the Axis forces and they began moving back in towards Germany through there. And so most scholars will say that's when the war effectively ended. And they'll say that because the tides and the momentum of war so turned in the favor of the Allied powers that the Axis powers really didn't have any hope. They didn't think they could win. They didn't, they knew they couldn't regain any kind of momentum. However, the war didn't end on D-Day, did it? The war ended on May 8th, 1945, which is VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, when the Germans conceded defeat in Europe. Now, uh, when I was, when I was uh, in junior high, we went to a field trip to the Museum of Tolerance. Has anyone ever been to the Museum of Tolerance? So that, that museum is dedicated to uh, really World War II history and in particular the atrocities and the, the genocide against the Jews at the hands of the Nazi regime. regime. And I remember um, we, we, at one point in the field trip we get ushered into a room and there's kind of this, this presentation moment and, and who came out was a World War II veteran, a Jewish American World War II veteran. We'll call his name Barry for, for this purpose. And so at the end of the presentation, I imagine if I went up to Barry and I said to Barry, hey dude, I probably wouldn't call him dude. Hey Barry, if the, if, if, I want to ask you when the war ended. Did the war end on June 6, 44, or did it end on May 8th, 45? He would probably look at me a little bit puzzled and be like, that's kind of a silly question. The war ended on May 8th of 45. 
Why? Even though the momentum of the war was so in favor of the allies, what they had to do, the soldiers still had to live in foxholes. They still had to survive on rations. They still had to dodge bullets. They still had to move and advance towards Germany. They still had to ultimately defeat the Axis powers. And, and the reason why I want to bring that up is because First Peter here in this book, he's writing to what he calls the elect exiles. The elect exiles were the people who lived in Jerusalem as God's people, but through persecution and suffering, they were pushed outwards to the far reaches of the known world where they now lived as foreigners or sojourners, not really comfortable in their new land. And, and, and we too, as God's people, we yearn for heaven. We are citizens of heaven living here on earth, and this place feels a little bit foreign to us. It's a little bit different. And yet, as Christians, we know that our D-Day has happened Like our D-Day has happened. Jesus Christ, when he hung from a cross and his blood spilled on our behalf, the, the penalty of our sin was paid. And then when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave, leaving an empty tomb, death lost its sting. The enemy was defeated and yet the full victory has not yet come. D-Day has indeed happened for the Christian. We know it has happened. Momentum is in our favor. Nothing can slow us down. Nothing can stop God in this world. And yet V-E Day has not yet come. Jesus has not yet returned and recreated all things. And so we're kind of living in the middle. We're in this tension where we, like Barry, we're, we're still in the middle of these everyday battles, jumping from foxhole to foxhole dodging bullets, trying to figure out how to live in this broken world that we know Jesus is returning to restore and renew. And we live as these elect exiles, yearning and groaning for God in our midst and not yet fully possessing it. And so I want us to consider this morning how knowing that D-Day has happened and V-E Day is surely coming, how does that change the way we live here and now? How does that change the way we see one another and we see this world? Because, friends, I think we can have a really powerful witness in our city if we live for the Lord. I think we can have a really powerful witness. And the only way we're going to live in that way is if we know the end of the story. And Christian, I know the end of the story for you. Jesus Christ is ultimately going to save you. And you are ultimately going to live with him forevermore. So knowing that, changes the way we live now. So here's the outline. Here's, here's how we're going to look at it. In verse 3, we're going to see how our living hope changes the way we live. Verse 4, our future inheritance changes the way we live. And then number 3, our security in Christ changes the way we live from verse 5. So look back to verse 3 with me. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now look at, look at the worship with which Peter begins there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise be to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he begin that way? Well, because he has caused us to be born again. He has caused salvation to come our way. And it says, according to his great mercy, not according to our merit, not according to us being good looking or cool or having things together. He has caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. So Peter begins with, Father, praise you for saving us, causing us to be born again according to your great mercy. Now, 
born again language has a ton of significant meaning biblically speaking. Uh, I was in the South for five years, and uh, one of the when you're having spiritual conversations with people, and you you start inquiring about where they're at in life, and most people uh, will, will, that I encountered at least from 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 North Texas would say something like this: "I'm a born again Christian." You, you hear that twang? I picked up a little bit of it. Not they didn't all speak that way. Come on. I'm a born again Christian. I'm born, and you start figuring out what does that mean? What does that mean? And, and oftentimes, not every time, I would hear things like, you know, I, I was born in Texas, so I'm a Christian, or my last name is blank, so I'm a Christian, or I'm in the, 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 the buckle of the Bible belt, so I'm, a, I'm kind of a cultural Christian, and, and those kind of things. But if we actually consider what born again means, it has deeply significant meaning. The idea, scripturally speaking, that we are born again means that God has bestowed entirely new life upon us. That this text says that when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, for those of us who are born again, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, we too spiritually were resurrected from the dead. To be born again means that you become a member of God's family. Born into a new family, a new heart, a new name. And this is huge because Jesus is now your older brother. And if you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, everything that the Father does for Jesus, he does for you, son or daughter of God. Everything that the Father says to Jesus, he says to you, son or daughter of God of the Father. I mean, think about this. Everything that God does for Jesus, he does for you. When Jesus is resurrected, you too are gonna be resurrected physically, bodily, in the presence of God. Everything he says to Jesus, Christian, he has said to you, think about that. When God says to Jesus, you are my son in whom I am well pleased, God is saying that to you, Christian. Does that change the way you see the Father? Does it change the way you see your own life? When he says to Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant, Christian, the Father is saying that to you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not because you earned it, not because you're doing so well in life, not because you're living according to some kind of uh, arbitrary standard, but because Jesus has accomplished that for you and you were born again into the Father's family. This means that you are a beloved child of God. And this means that you can do nothing to change how much the Father loves you. You are a son or a daughter of God, a new person, a new heart. No longer does your earthly last name, your earthly family of origin, your earthly lineage, none of that can define you. What defines you is that you are a member of the Father's family. And not only are you a member of the Father's family, you're a member of the Creator's family. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign of the universe calls you son or daughter. This is huge. And this text will say, understanding that you are born again into the Father's family should produce what? A living hope. Your hope is as alive as Jesus is. You have a living hope, Christian, and the amount of hope that you have and the amount of hope you grow in is deeply rooted in how much you understand that you are a child of God. And and here's how understanding your living hope changes the way you live. Your understanding of your living hope changes your fundamental identity. Here's what I mean by that. 
Here in, in, in America, in the, the day and age we live, we, we define ourselves according to what we can do, what we can accomplish, how much we can get done, how, how, how my resume stacks up against everyone else. But that's not how the Father sees us. He doesn't see us according to what we do. He sees us according to what Christ has done. And he sees us according to who we are and who we are becoming. Here's the way I like to think about that. My my son, Owen, he'll turn two next Sunday. Um, I'm going to speak in some cruel terms about Owen, okay? I love him, but I'm going to do it for the sake of illustration. Um, So don't hear me being mean to my son. But at the end of the day, my son, Owen is a complete leech to the bottom line of the Cunningham household. (laughs) Right? Owen doesn't work. He doesn't pay taxes. He doesn't doesn't put any money in the savings account. He can't change his own diaper. He doesn't run chores for us. He he can't drive and go pick things up when I need him to. Um, And and, and if we let him feed himself, we're going to be cleaning up for the next three to four hours. So this kid, I mean, he's just, he doesn't do anything to help the Cunningham household, right? And if I defined how much I loved him based upon what he can accomplish, man, he'd be caged up till he's about 18, right? But at the end of the night, when I'm sitting there holding Owen, I'm, I'm rocking Owen, I'm reading to him, I'm, I'm praying with him, I'm not sitting there saying, okay, son, look me in the eyes. You're going to have to do more for this family. I want you to get a job. I don't think you're taking your applications that seriously, kid. You need to get out there. One day, I might have that conversation with him, but not now. Right now, man, I hold him and I, I pray for him and I, I wonder and ask God, like, is there any more room in my heart for how much I love this child? My heart bursts with joy and delight for my son. Why? Because he's from me. He is of me. He's a Cunningham. He shares DNA with Katie and I, and I'm so pleased in him. And he can do nothing to change how much I love him. He can do nothing to lose his place as a member of this family. And he needs to understand that his fundamental identity in our home has nothing to do with how he contributes to the bottom line and has everything to do with who he is. And when we are members of God's family, we possess this living hope because we understand that's how the Father sees us. See, oftentimes I can beat myself up. I'm not doing enough for God. I'm not serving hard enough. I'm not trying, I'm not putting enough effort. And the Father just gently, through his word, speaks. says, it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. You are in Christ and you are my son and I am pleased in you. For every Christian in the room, that's what God says to you. Changes your fundamental identity. It also changes your day-to-day perspective. So uh, bringing Owen back into the equation here, Owen being two, possesses zero wisdom and zero knowledge of this world. All right, so Owen will look at the oven and the light's on and he sees, ooh, light, I'm gonna climb in there and grab the light. It's like, no, you can't do that. Ball rolls into the street and he's just, I'm gonna go get the ball. Like, no, you can't do that. He doesn't know what can hurt him, what can't hurt him, what's safe, what's not safe. And he needs to trust the wisdom that Katie and I share of of 30 years of living and, and messing things up often. He needs to trust us a little bit and we know what's best for him. And when we become members of the father's family, we trust God's wisdom, we trust God's knowledge and we trust that God knows what's best for us. 
And we trust that when suffering or trials or things come our way, we trust that God is working those things out to a good end. And we trust that God knows what's good for us and what's not good for us. And we trust that God is sanctifying. So if we understand we are members of the Father's family, we submit ourselves in utter trust of him, knowing that he knows best. And then finally, knowing that you're a member of the Father's family changes the way you view others. So I think about Barry and and his soldiers in the middle of World War II. I wonder if there was moments, say it's January, brutal German winter, not a ton of rations, you're starving, you're hungry. I I bet in those moments they had a little bit of amnesia about D-Day. They probably forgot that D-Day happened. They probably forgot that victory is, is pretty much won and momentum's in their favor. And so in those moments, they were in despair. They were hopeless, so to speak. And and oftentimes, friends, we forget about the gospel. We have gospel amnesia, so to speak. We forget that our D-Day has happened, that Christ has secured our place in the Father's family. And in those moments, we don't understand our circumstances and what's going on around us. And man, we lose hope, which is why we desperately need each other. Which is why I'm saying a member of God's family. It's not just about father and son, father and daughter. It's about brother and sister, one to another. When we find ourselves in those moments of gospel amnesia, being hope dealers, one to another. Pointing one another to the truth of the gospel. Pointing one another to the resurrected Christ. Pointing one another to the living hope that we possess. And hopefully this moves us with empathy towards one another. Hopefully this moves us with empathy towards one another. So first point, knowing our living hope as members of the Father's family changes the way we live here and now. Next point, our inheritance changes the way we live in the middle of the story, in the present. So God has caused us to be born again. It's it's according to his great mercy through the resurrection of Jesus. And it says we're born again to a living hope. But then in verse four, it continues. We are born to something else. Look at verse four. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Not only are we born to a living hope, but we are born again to an inheritance. So to understand this idea of inheritance, let me do a little bit of uh, Bible work with you. Uh, In the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with your Bible, that's okay. The Old Testament is everything that happened before Jesus came on the scene. In the Old Testament, God's people were called Israel. And Israel, all the way back in, in Genesis 12, was promised an inheritance, a physical piece of land called Canaan. It was promised to Abraham and all of his descendants. And, and really, one of the storylines of the Old Testament is God's people working to get their way to the promised land, to receive their inheritance. And, and eventually, Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel uh, got into this land of Canaan, and they cast lots, and they took over their different pieces of land. And, 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 and so God promised to his people in the Old Testament, you, you have an inheritance as my people. But God here, through Peter, is also promising to his people, Christians, an inheritance that is theirs to come as well. Only our inheritance is not a physical, earthly piece of land. Our inheritance is in the kingdom of God, in eternity. And namely, the most prominent thing about our inheritance is that we get God himself forevermore. But think about this. Peter will say to us that this inheritance is imperishable. It is not subject to decay. 
He says that this inheritance is undefiled, meaning it's unpolluted and worthy of God's full acceptance. He says that this inheritance is unfading, meaning that over time, your inheritance will not wither, grow dim, or lose its beauty. And he says it's being kept in heaven for you, Christian. Now think about the comparisons between the Old Testament inheritance and ours. Theirs is simply a foreshadowing of ours. Theirs is the shadow. Ours is the substance. Theirs is on earth. Ours is in heaven. Theirs can decay as a piece of physical land. Ours cannot decay because it's kept in heaven. Theirs can be polluted, and it was often. Ours was not. Their earthly inheritance could lose its value. If that land didn't produce crop, it had no value. Ours cannot lose value. Their earthly piece of land could be stolen from them, and oftentimes it was. And ours cannot be taken from us. It's being kept in heaven for us. Our inheritance is so gloriously beyond the Old Testament inheritance that it causes nothing but joy and hope in the believer. Who remembers kind of the, I'm assuming most people in this room remember the recession back in 2006, 2010-ish. I don't know how long it was. Raise your hand. Remember that? A little interactive um, time here. So I was back in high school back then, so, so I don't really remember everything about it, but my parents, they own a small business here in Southern California, and, and, and I'm sure in the middle of it, they, they protected us from a lot of things, but I'm sure in the middle of it, there was a lot of questions about, are we going to get a job? Is another job coming our way? Are wages going to get paid? Are we going to be able to pay bills? Are we going to make it through this? Are we going to have to temporarily close the doors on this business until things turn around and then reopen it? And, and I'm sure there was a lot of nights wondering, are they going to get a pay? What's going on in the middle of this recession? But I also remember in the middle of that, my parents would sit my brother and I down and look at us and say, hey, listen. We've worked really hard, and we've put things in savings. We've put things in an inheritance for you, and, 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 and we've done so much, and we've worked so hard that no matter if this company goes under, if things don't turn around, the inheritance is separate from the company. It's not in jeopardy. It's secure. It's being kept for you. Even if we lose everything, you guys will still get your inheritance, and this is what the text is saying to us when it says that our inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. It means that it is protected. It is secure. It's not in jeopardy. You, friend, cannot lose your inheritance in Jesus Christ. It is secure and steady for you. And this changes the way we see everything. Our circumstances will change, and they're going to challenge us, and trials are going to come our way. There's going to be seasons where the bank account feels full and seasons where it feels empty. There's going to be seasons where you're not sure if rent or the mortgage is going to be paid or, or how we're going to get that car note uh, paid for this month. There's going to be seasons wondering if another job is going to come your way. Am I actually going to get that job? But friends, does our hope rise and fall with the stock market or does it rise with Jesus Christ alone? Our inheritance changes the way we see everything. It changes the way we see our belongings. We as Christians should be the most radically generous people in this world. You remember that silly country song from like a decade ago that you can't take a hearse with a trailer hitch to the grave? Like that was a stupid song, but man, there was some truth in that, right? 
Man, we spend so much time working and saving and buying for stuff that's going to end up in junkyards or attics, collecting moths and dust and rust. We save so, we work so hard to do that. Instead, we as Christians know that our ultimate inheritance, our ultimate value is in heaven, not on earth. So we become the most radically generous people on earth, giving freely of everything we have that others might be blessed. Even when God promised Abraham and the Old Testament saints their inheritance in Canaan, in Genesis 12, God says, you are blessed to be a blessing. You have this land to bless all nations. And God has blessed us, friends, with so much. And we are blessed to be a blessing. Our inheritance changes the way we live. Ma'am, may Story Church be known as one of the most radically generous churches. Would we neglect buying things for our own sake that we might give them away and steward them to the ends of the earth? And friends, we've been able to participate in that already. You, church, I mean, it's probably creeping up on, on $25,000, $30,000 that we've given away already as a church. We're three weeks in. And I'm not saying that to applaud us or, or for me to pat myself on the back. I'm saying that to say we want to model this, that our confidence is in our inheritance, not our bank account. And I want us to increase in that story, church. Let's continue to increase in that. Our inheritance changes the way we see our time and our energy. We become unbelievably free and others-centered with our time and our energy. Wayne Cordero, who's a pastor in Hawaii, um, in one of his books, he says that he wants his tomb, tombstone to say he went out on empty. He went out, went out on empty. Man, may that be said of all of us. Would we work so hard to bless others, to love others, to know others, to live on God's mission that every single one of us goes out on empty, knowing our inheritance is kept in heaven for us and nothing can shake that, change that, destroy that, and all that we face here and now is just light and momentary compared to everything with God in eternity. Final point, our security changes the way we live. Read verse five with me. You're saved to an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So I've spent a good chunk of time in my life, especially in my young adulthood, uh, in Cambodia. And I went on, I I don't know how many trips I went on, but I went over there a ton of times on short-term mission trips. And on one of the trips that I was helping to lead, um, we, were, we were called, some of the guys in the group were called to go do some street evangelism on some railroad tracks outside of the capital city. Now, for, for those of you that don't know Cambodian history and geography, that means nothing to you. But, but if you learn a little bit about Cambodian history and geography, what they were telling us to do was actually terrifying. So Pol Pot in the late 1960s was an evil dictator that rose to power and in the 1970s Pol Pot and his Khmer Rouge took over control of the Cambodian government and, and the, the ideology they built their party on was the fact that everything that is equal to Western is evil. They wanted to eradicate anything Western out of the Cambodian country. And so what they did is they went on a systemic genocide of anyone who appeared to be uh, Western. So somewhere between 1.7 and 2.2 million people were killed in the 1970s in Cambodia. And they killed people who looked Western, people with glasses, people who were educated, people who were white, people who were doctors, nurses, university professors, and the children of those people. They wanted to rid... um, 
Cambodia of Western influences. And the number one thing that, that, the, that Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge said was Western was Christianity. Now, eventually the, 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 the previous Cambodian government came in and overthrew the Khmer Rouge and retook the, the country and it's an incredibly safe and beautiful place to be now, but there was a few remnant of the Khmer Rouge that were relocated to this small community outside of the capital city along these railroad tracks. So there was just a few people remaining who continued to embrace this ideology and that's exactly where they told my team and I to go share the gospel. So let's do some mental math real quick. Here's some people that embrace ideology that everything Western is evil. Listen, I'm white, I wear glasses, I'm educated, I'm Christian, and, and, and I'm supposed to go share, no. That, I'm not going there. And about that moment, I'm probably having a meltdown. I'm like saying, no, we're, we're not going there. We're not, we're not even going near that place. I'm not putting these guys' lives at risk. We're not gonna go confront these people. About that time, this guy Panette walks into the room. Now, Panette was one of those guys, when he walks into the room, you know, like the presence goes with him kind of thing. And everyone just kind of stops and looks at him and he says, I had a good relationship with him to this point. He says, Travis, chill out. I'm like, why? He's like, listen, I'm from that community. My, my parents were members of the Khmer Rouge. And not only was he a member and born and raised in that community, but he had converted to Christianity years prior. And he had continued to build relationships in that community. And so he says to me, listen, if you're with me, you're gonna be okay. These people are gonna trust you because they trust me. And Peter here in verse five is saying, we, the heir to this inheritance, are being guarded by God's power, even though we find ourselves in the middle of the story with war waging around us, we are secure because we are with God and he is with us. This changes everything. We are completely secure and we are, have the promise of the power of God to protect us. One translator translated the text this way, God is continually using his power to guard you until ultimate salvation. God is continually, actively using his power to guard you until ultimate salvation. Isn't that comforting? Like as I walked through this Cambodian railroad track, I knew I was safe because I was with Panette. And as we, Christian, walk through this life, we know we are safe and secure because we are with God and his power is with us by his spirit. And think about the ways in which this text will describe God's power. In verse three, it says, this is the power that caused us to be born again from death to life, from orphan to child. This is the power that caused Jesus Christ to be resurrected and leave an empty tomb. This is the power that is storing up and guarding a heavenly inheritance for us that cannot be touched, marred, stained, or ruined. This is the power that is guarding you, Christian. An unlimited power. Doesn't that produce a level of security within you? Confidence within you? But, but here's my problem. You, you're probably sharing this with me. I put my security in so many things that are not God. My intellect, I can find my security there. My, my personality, what, how I can sway people with force of personality, I find my security there. I can find my security in my family, my family of origin, what they've accomplished. I can find my security in my job title or how much each paycheck shows. I can find my security in my material goods and, and the things that I possess in my life. But man, 
God never designed any of those things to be our security. Like a flimsy piece of scaffolding, if we stand upon those things and place our security in them, they will come crashing down. It's just a matter of when. God has designed himself to be our source of security. His power and the gospel is your only source of security and it will uphold you through this life. And doesn't that change the way you live in the middle of this story? One of, the, one of the ways this security changes the way I live is that it completely destroys my perceived self-importance, my perceived reputation, the way I think others think about me. It changes the way I live. I don't, I don't really care. You know, I am who God says I am. I am in Christ. I am secure. I am being guarded. I have this ultimate inheritance coming my way. Who cares what happens here on earth? It changes the way I view myself. It changes my missionary impulse. I'm going to go share the gospel with anyone who will hear it. I don't care what they say back to me. If in rejecting me, all they're doing is rejecting Christ. And when Christ is rejected, we get to share in that, man, we are sharing in an honor to be identified with Christ. It changes my willingness to fail. Why do I do this stupid image management? I'm going to get out there. I'm going to try things for Jesus because I am secure in Jesus. This changes the way we live. So let me bring D-Day and V-E Day back into the equation here as we begin to close. On D-Day, practical victory is won for Barry and his, his comrades, but they're, they're, they still had the wait for V-E Day to, to come to pass, and, and this is where we live right now. I'm assuming in that 11 months between D-Day and V-E Day, there were thousands of little moments where Barry forgot everything and lost hope. And I'm sure there are thousands of moments for all of us where we forget that D-Day has happened, the cross has happened, the resurrection has happened. We forget that V-E Day is coming. The, the return of Jesus Christ is surely coming. Where do you find yourself this morning? Do you find yourself remembering D-Day has happened do you find yourself remembering that you are a member of the Father's family and the Father has an inheritance for you and not only is he guarding your inheritance, he is guarding you as the heir. Are you there? And is that changing the way you see the world and the way you live? Are you forgetting it? I find myself there all the time, struggling with the pains of this life and the indwelling sin that I can't seem to defeat and get over, forgetting that God has given me everything I need for life and godly. I find myself there all the time. And if you're there, there's hope for you. There's security for you. There's a day coming where you're gonna receive this inheritance in Jesus Christ, I promise you. And I want Story Church to be a place, man, where we can just be honest about these things. Where we can share that, man, I'm going through some trials. I got some pain. I got some sin that's entangling me. And I want us to be met with the truth of this word. For the Christian in the room, you are a son or a daughter of the Father's family. Nothing can change that. You possess a living hope. No one can steal that from you. You have an inheritance one day coming your way and it is imperishable, undefiled, and it is being guarded for you until the last day. Christian, that is true for you. 
Do you feel the freedom to talk about where you find yourself right now? Because I know if you're like me, you need to speak those things and you need to hear someone say to you the truth of the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ. I want us to be a place where we're free to do that and we are free, as I said earlier, to be hope dealers one to another. For for the non-Christians in the room, man, I, I know the end of the story as well. And right now, as a, as a member of an opponent, as an opponent of, of God, the, the day that is coming for you is ultimate defeat, but that can change here and now. God has hope for you in Jesus Christ, life for you in Jesus Christ. All you do is turn from your sin and trust in him. This is the place to do that. We want to welcome you and love you and show you the way of Jesus. So with that said, I want you to go ahead and um, bow your heads and, and close your eyes. I'm going to ask the band to come back up here. And think about for, for a moment, let's just reflect together. Where do you find yourself right now? Thank you. Do you find yourself hopeful or without hope? Do you find yourself confident in, in Jesus Christ or confident in some situation in your life? Do you find your security in the things you can accomplish or do you find your security in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? And what can you do this morning to confess those things and to put your confidence back in Jesus Christ alone, in the gospel alone, and and have this living hope, have this security, have this, uh, this, this understanding of God that only the truth of the scripture can provide for us. If you're not a Christian, what's holding you back? From receiving this living hope, receiving this inheritance, receiving this security? Is it that you think God can't accept you? Is it that you think you're too sinful or you've strayed too far? Is it, is it because you think you don't need God? And the truth is the cross is enough. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to change your behavior. You don't need to, you, you don't need to go accomplish something for God before he'll see fit to save you. He will save you according to this text because of his great mercy. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God. That is my plea with you this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for your great mercy to us. We thank you that in Christ we have nothing but hope, nothing but security, and nothing but a future reward. And it's not because of us, it's because of him. And so for those of us, God, that are barely clinging to these truths, I pray, God, you would cling all the more tightly to us and we would know that and sense that. For those of us uh, who are without hope, God, I pray you would give us hope this morning. For those of us who are wandering, I pray you would bring us home. For those of us who are questioning, Father, I pray you would give us comfort in the mystery of the gospel. For those of us who are skeptical, God, I pray that you would confront that skepticism with the truth of your word. And I pray you would do that all, God, for your glory, for your name, for your fame, for your renown, and that we might receive the joy that comes with glorifying you, God. 
pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.